I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everyone, just me at the top of the show to say a few things. One, I apologize for my microphone in this episode you're about to hear. Uh, As you can hear from my voice, a little bit sick. So me and Charlie decided to do it over Zoom instead. The device I used to record... um, my vocals on the file was corrupted when I went to change it over. And so we're just using the microphone from my uh, Zoom call. So it's my laptop mic. So that's all you're hearing. It's fine. It's it's just not the normal crisp sound that, you, that you're accustomed to. Charlie's is perfectly fine though. Uh, that's all I need to say, I think. Uh, thanks everyone who's been leaving five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and iTunes. That's great. Thanks everyone who's Patreon subscribers. You are the absolute best. Enjoy this episode with guest Charlie Pickering talking about 100 Hits, Volume 8, Side A. Hello and welcome to 100 Hits, Volume Pod, the podcast that looks at arguably, I now have to say arguably, the greatest compilation of music this country's ever produced. My name is Josh Earl, and today, very special guest, it's Charlie Pickering, everyone. Yay. Josh, lovely to be here. And and you're right to be delicate. Yes. Because it's, I, I mean, it's come up on the podcast before, but 100% hits and hit machine. Yeah. I mean, it's Sharks versus Jets, Bloods versus Crips. This, is a, this is a house of 100% hits. What, what yeah. was the was the Pickering House? What was it? Light in the sand. Well, do you know what? At the risk of sounding way too privileged, um, I was both. Yeah, know? nice. So I would get everything that came out. I was, and it's really funny. Like, I would be excited seeing the ad for Hundred Percent Hits or Hit Machine. Yeah, and I'd be like, awesome. But it started like, because. You know, like 100% hits volume eight, like they, you know, they really got up ahead of steam. There was yeah. a lot of them. I grew up buying vinyl of like 84 in the groove or 83 through the roof. Yep. And so they were like, it was a new thing every year, but then to lock in on a brand and have brand loyalty, but it was the Coke versus Pepsi. And it you really know, was. They were, yeah. and, and, and they were all very quenching. But you know what? As we are having had a little look at the, the track list for this app, there's one song that I think becomes a talking point for the difference between um, 100% Hits and Hit Machine. So I'll, yeah. I'll keep my powder dry on that. Great. And, so uh, I, and we'll visit I, that shortly. I think at this stage, whoever was compiling them in the original four has left or has been moved on to, to greener pastures. And I think the person doing it now very much is going, all right, we need to make this cool. It's now... They're kind of like more cutting edge bands, I'd say. They've still got some of the ones that you're like, all right, you got to put this on to keep your, the dads in the car happy. But we're, we're starting to get a bit more cool when we're getting volume eight. So it's 1993. So how, how old are you in 93, Charlie? 93, I'm 15, 15. going on 16. Oh, so 
perfect age, but almost as if you're, you're aging out of these compilations. Yeah, I think that's possible. It's, it's sort of, I mean, really hitting the age where um, listening to Triple J is opening your mind, is, is the way that you sample new music yeah. as opposed to buying 100% hits or yeah. watching. And actually it's where you graduate a bit from video hits to rage. Yes. You know, it's, it's a beautiful coming of age story. <laughs> you're, you're curious about your body. And now and then you want to hear the Beastie Boys. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> All right, we're gonna we're gonna kick it off then, because uh, we've got some we've got lots to talk about here, which is great. So we're gonna kick off a little Melbourne band, all the way from Collingwood. This is the Sharp, and their song, their first single, by the way, "Trade of Thought." Just had to get to the ooh oohs. Yeah. Well, that's the that's where the train comes into it. Yes, the train anyone whistle. That, blowing. Anyone that's raised a child who's interested in Thomas the Tank Engine knows <laughs> that a train is pulling into the station at that point. I didn't realize after we had our kids and we started watching Thomas the Tank Engine, both my kids are named after trains in Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Um, Even middle names. Now, <laughs> Gordon Percy Earl. Yes, that's it. <laughs> And Fat Controller Earl. Uh, (laughs) So the Sharp. So they formed in 91. They formed in Collingwood. They had a uniform, black and white, which fit in with the Collingwood motif. Yeah, it was was a bold football-based move for someone hoping for global success. (laughs) I think on paper the Sharp, fantastic. Like the Sharp as a band name. Great band name. Oh, great band name, The Sharp. And and I've got to say about listening to Train of Thought now, I wasn't that into the song when I when I had this yep. originally. But I think it's just, it's a bit because I saw them on Hey Hate Saturday and I thought they were kind of up themselves, right? Yeah. It was the feeling, I just remember thinking that when I was a kid. Um, because they had a double bass player who would stand on the bass and it was yep. like, um, it was almost like, and 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 I say this, I I love Tim Minchin, but it almost had a, a vibe like Tim Minchin was the double bass player, if you know what I mean, yeah. like a real sort of character constantly pulling focus to yep. what he's doing, you know, like, and I say that like I love Tim Minchin, but it's it's, I I don't know yeah. who saw who first. Yeah, you if know? if you said to me, oh, one of the one of the members of the Sharps wears eyeliner and uh, doesn't wear shoes on stage, I go, oh, okay, that that checks out. That's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But the the uniform the uniform though I should should just say was black black suit white skivvy 
Yeah. That's 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 I just want to put that out there in the listeners' and mind white, so they know what we're talking about. And white skibby is a bold move. I yeah. mean I, not just because well pasta is off the menu. Yes. Like you know, but but also <laughs> just the white skibby is bold. It's really bold. Like, you know, if if Simon and Garfunkel had worn white skibbies on the Sounds of Silence, yep. I'm not sure it would have been the hit that it was. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the one thing I wanted to say about this song, listening to it now is I, I think the song would have had, like, would, would be such a credible song and be considered a really cool song if it was by, if it was a Britpop song. If yep. it was like Cooler Shaker or Supergrass or someone like that, it sounds to me like a song that would have fit so well into the, the Britpop oeuvre. Yeah. But coming out of Melbourne, it never felt... Well, it felt legit. the other thing for me, the, the what I just played then for the listener, okay, great. But then about two minutes into it, they do, which is often the case in a lot of these early 90s bands, a bit of white boy rapping. Yeah. And it's like that really dates the song. A little bit, yes. a little bit too much diesel for my liking. But I will say, <laughs> so well, as you were saying, they were a bit too cool for school. They were a very cool band playing around pubs in Collingwood and stuff like that. And then overnight, like that, no longer cool because The Late Show, ABC's The Late Show, did a parody of their song Scratch My Back, which was Skivvies Are Back. Yes. And from that moment on, the bubble burst. Yeah. And, it, I mean, it's, a, it's great um, to place this relative to the raw cultural power of the degeneration at the time. <laughs> yeah. And, and just, the, you know, like... Um, Every time they did a parody, you know, like the Harry Connick Jr. parody, yep. everyone remembers the the trumpets, like the horns yep. interrupting the music. Now when I listen to Harry Connick Jr., that's what I've got. I see Rob Sitch in my head. Yeah. And, and yeah, they could end a career. Oh, um, Things of Stone and Wood had the so many Melbourne cliches. I don't, know oh, if they, yeah. I don't know if they recovered after that. No, I don't think so because... Because people wanted the parody version. Yeah. You know, you go and see them at a pub and you go, oh, I kind of want the funny one, funny version of that. Um, uh, but it's, yeah, it's pretty amazing. And you think about it, just just speaking of the raw power of the degeneration, when they became Working Dog and they made Frontline, which was by and large a parody of Ray Martin. Yeah. Ray Martin himself said that that shortened his career hosting A Current Affair because his kids were laughing at the Frontline version. Yeah, and he saw that he'd become the punchline. That's, you know, they always they have been mighty, mighty. Uh, Johnny Carson talks about that when he was hosting the Tonight Show in America, and then Dana Carvey did a version of Johnny Carson on Saturday Night Live. And when it was all kind of like because Dana Carvey loves Johnny Carson, but then it got yeah. a bit mean. And apparently, Johnny Carson would walk around the office of Tonight Show going, "Well, they're making fun of me now. It's time to go. Time to wrap it up. I'm now the yeah. punchline." And it's, Happens. I mean, what you'd have to say is, um, Johnny, the showbiz acumen of Johnny Carson is almost unparalleled in history. Yeah. And I think, you know, if he thought it, it was absolutely true. Yeah. You know? All right. Now, moving on, we have another Australian band. This is also a very brand new band in terms of 93. Uh, so this is the band Caligula and their song, I.C.U. I 
All right, that's enough of that. Okay. Oh wow! I just have to say, <laughs> I just have to say, I I haven't heard lyrics take themselves that seriously in a long time. I know. I, I don't know what this band looks like. I'm just gonna guess. Singer has a paisley shirt. Paisley shirt. One button done. Uh, that's it. Yeah. I, I I don't know. Like I all I know of this band is they they did a cover of Smokey Robinson's Tears of the Clown. Yep. I remember co- that. The coolest kid in my school, Ryan Pedward, that was his favorite song. He was like, Oh, you got it. This song's the best. Okay. You'll, I love this song. And I was like, Oh, have you heard the original song? No, he hadn't. I'm like, Oh, you should listen to that one. That's, that's a really good song. Yeah. This, one, this one's fine. I mean, it speaks volumes of the enigma that was, what was his name? Ryan. Ryan Pedderwood. Ryan Pedderwood. Where yeah. is he? What's he doing? I know exactly where he is. Good guy. Lives living in Bernie still. Uh, his family took over Jointly's, which was the it was the fish and chip place. It was the oh, best really? fish and chips That's in Bernie. And his family took it over when we were in like year ten or something. Um, I bet all his favorite movies are remakes of original movies. Like, <laughs> like he really likes the Sylvester Stallone Get Carter or the or, you yeah. know. <laughs> <laughs> he likes the uh, Vince Vaughn uh, Psycho. He loves yeah. that one. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so this band, this was off their first EP. Um, and this is not on Spotify. Can I just say this is you have to get, you have to go onto YouTube if you want to hear the power of Caligula. Uh, they got lots of lots of airplay on Triple J though, and on Triple M. They're one of those bands that could divide the two, or not divide the two, but like span the two, span the two, yeah. And so uh, they've got uh, Ashley Rothschild is the singer, and then the Fonty Brothers are also in there. Uh, the Fonty Brothers, when they left the band, because the band kind of imploded, they went on to form the band Primary. You heard of the band? Yeah, yeah. I've heard of Primary, yeah. Yeah. Which is that kind of more, I think, not that this is industrial sounds, but you can see that there's kind of influenced by those industrial sounds in there and also mixed with some uh, keyboard-sounding panpipes. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It, it feels like, um, I mean, because like, Sonically, what happens after now is you start to get, you know, bands that like um, Portishead or yeah. um, uh, Tricky and, you know, like those trip hop bands that actually start to master that sound better, yeah. like using synth, but not in a way that it feels like synth, you know. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's really funny. Like Caligula, I'm, I'm a bit stuck on the Fonty Brothers. Yeah, like is it Calibri and Helvetica, the Fonty brothers? <laughs> but <laughs> just <laughs> um, uh, it, yeah, it's it's funny just listening to it. Of like, you couldn't imagine how at the time that felt like a really edgy song. Yeah, but having lived through grunge and trip hop and come back to it. It's like it does. It, it you know it, it almost feels like a knockoff. If, yeah. if you know what I mean. You listen to this and then listen to like Nine Inch Nails, who are around the time. Just go. Okay, yeah. I, I can see what's probably a bit more authentic. Are you saying that the Fonty Brothers are no Trent Reznor? <laughs> hey, the Fonty Brothers. I want them to have a comeback. I want them to just name a band called the Fonty Brothers. A bit like the Teskey Brothers. Yeah. But just way more industrial. Fonty Brothers. If you're listening, Joshua wants a collab. Yeah, I'm a big fan. Also, I should put the uh, Caligula nominated for Best New Talent at the Arias in 93, lost to the aforementioned Things of Stone and Wood. Wow. Yeah, there I you mean, go. I mean, it was a hot time. I mean, it's worth saying that this was a hot time in 
Australian music. And yeah. it felt like, and maybe it's because compilations like this existed and people bought them, that there was money to be had for backing Australian bands around this time. And, and you know, this is, I mean, UMI are just kicking into gear around or starting to gig around now. Yep. And, you, you know, you remember like, what was it, 96 when they won all the Arias on the planet for Hourly Daily. Yes. They were, they were like, that was that was real sales heft behind Australian music. Yep. And, you know, that's it's this sort of um, ecosystem that made that possible, you know. Well, this this uh, album has a lot a lot more Australian music on it than the ones previously. And um, we're now going to talk about a, a band that were huge in 93. Speaking of Arias, they took home a bunch of Arias. This is The Cruel Sea oh. from what, you know, if someone said to me, the best Australian album of all time is The Honeymoon Is Over. I wouldn't agree with them, but I wouldn't argue with them. I wouldn't say, no, that's that's a ridiculous notion. I would say, okay, I can see where you got that. I, I, I disagree with it, but it's definitely in a yeah. top ten. It's definitely yeah. in contention, absolutely. And this is their song, Black Stick. I mean, everything about that song is perfect. It's great, isn't it? It's t- it's timeless. I was listening to that going, that could be released today. It could have been released like in like the 60s, 70s. It's so yeah, good. It, that, that could be like, you know, you listen to it. That could have been an early Steely Dan song, The Sound of the Guitar, yeah. in there, you know, like, yeah. or even Santana or, you know, like the production is just perfect, the space of it. Mm. Everything is right about it. And Talking about what people thought was cool, yeah, there was literally nothing cooler than the Cruel Sea back. No, like no. nothing cooler. And I have to say, like I was a huge fan of this album. I was really into the Cruel Sea, but how cool they were led to the worst moment in my professional career. Oh, yep. So back in two thousand and one, when I was hosting Drive on. Triple J with Mel Bampton and Tex Perkins came in for an interview in the studio and I was so starstruck and and I and, and to be really honest I was so overwhelmed by his raw masculinity yep I froze up and I literally didn't ask a single question for the whole interview <laughs> and so Mel figured it out and she just asked all the questions and now and then Tex just would look at me and then look at Mel with this look at his face like what's with this <laughs> and it was like he left the room and I liked and, and I had to say and, and then the next mic break I was talking about like, I don't know what happened I was just yeah. over overcome 
by Tex Perkins. But just hands down the coolest. Yes. The coolest cowboy in the rodeo, without a doubt. Yeah. Like, he's, a, he's a short king. I, I love him. He's only my height. He's only, he's only a little man, five foot seven, five foot eight. Uh, now, I'm often uh, overwhelmed by your masculinity thank as you. well, Josh. Yeah, I get that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> now, I, I must confess, when the 100% Hits Volume 8 ads were playing on TV, they would play a snippet of this and have uh, Tex Perkins singing, My Heart is a Muscle, and my brother and I would make fun of it and pretend to be it. And it was a big, big joke in our house going, My heart is a muscle like a big old <laughs> dream. Yeah. Got the um, old boys giggling away. Back because it's also a reminder back when we watched ads, yeah. <laughs> and we and like when you were a kid, you saw every ad and you saw yeah. it a billion times and you knew every word to every ad, yeah. So that absolutely would just be burned into your brain. Yeah. Like, I'll give you an example. I, I reckon you all know this, right? I played this ad to my wife who grew up in America and had never seen it. Um, but I have never forgotten the words to the Sustage and Gold song. The sustage and gold is giving you more, making the most out of life, right? And, like, since I was a kid, that's just been in my head and it's never getting out. Yeah. There's a uh, clothing store in Launceston, and so we would get the ads there, and it would it did a cover of, like, a parody of um, Paint It Black by Rolling Stones, and it was like, the summer's over and to school you must go back <laughs> to get those uniforms and books and pens and bags. <laughs> and like, I'm like, I always like, there's no way they paid the rights for ja- Jagger and Richard signed off on. Yeah. All right. That's a story in Launceston. Because what, okay. The, the, the boring thing about rights is you can, I think you can record your own version of yep. something and you don't have to get permission. If you're going to change lyrics and, and do a parody, you have to have written permission from the artist to do that. Yeah. I just imagine the fucking phone call between, oh. um, between Mick Jagger, uh, Mick Jagger and-, and Keith Richards just going, yeah, so what do you think of this back to school one? I think that's pretty good. School's very important, Mick. It's very important. Uh- yeah, I, I like the idea of kids buying books. You know, it, it actually fits in. Like, I don't know if you remember this a few years ago. It's like my favourite injury that got reported in the news but um I th- the rolling stones had to cancel a gig this is sort of early 2000s yep um because keith richards had broken a rib <laughs> right and and then the news report i said um keith richards broke a rib when he fell off a ladder while getting a book off a shelf in his library See, and it's I, just like, I love it. I love it so much. The one I thought you were going for, because he also broke a rib climbing up a coconut tree to get a coconut. <laughs> <laughs> it's also another great. That yeah, is I fantastic. Mean, what the depth, the breadth and depth of Keith Richards. Amazing. Hey, just to give uh, the Cruel Sea their flowers, I'll give a little bit of background. If you've never heard the Cruel Sea, go and listen to Home In is over. But they started off as an instrumental band playing gigs at the Harold Park Hotel in Sydney, which now does comedy. Uh, the stage where they were played was so small and so tight that if, because they were just playing like instrumentals, people were still playing pool on the pool table. And if someone wanted to take a shot at one end, the guitarist had to move out of the way so they could take their <laughs> shot. <laughs> Great. Getting, getting good live buzz. Tex Perkins was not in the band. He was their lighting guy. So Tex Perkins no. had already been in the Beast of Bourbon. So 
wasn't known, but he was like, yeah, I'll get some cash on the side, do a light. Yeah. Watching the band and as he was watching them, kind of going, oh, I could I could get a melody on this. And then went to the band after one of the gigs and said, hey, I've got some ideas for some lyrics for this song. If you ever want me to, to hop off the lighting rig and come down and, and do it, which I think bold mood by Tex, but as we've already established, very charismatic man, could probably get away with saying it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, I imagine... Like having done shows, if I had the lighting person come up to me after the show and go, hey, I've got some ideas for you. This is what I reckon. How about I get on for five <laughs> minutes and just do something? I'd be like, no, no, thanks. But that's like going, uh, the lighting person is saying, hey, Josh, I've got some punchlines for your stories. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh, brutal. Uh, look, but I mean, you know. If you say it to me in October, November when I'm writing, yeah, by all means, I'll take them. I'll take them. <laughs> um. What a yeah! What a cracker! Like yeah. just in every way. Oh, All right, man, that's hard to beat. That is really well, hard to beat. This is the song. Honestly, this is the song that changed the tra- trajectory of my life. This is the Lemonheads and their version of the Simon and Garfunkel classic, Mrs. Robinson. <laughs> Great song, love this song. Yeah, yeah. um, it's it, it's uh, Ryan. What was his name? Ryan, the lead the guy singer. At school. The, oh, the, Ryan Penderwood. Ryan Penderwood would have loved yep. this. He did. Now, loved the remake. Loves this, the remake really hard. This was the reason why it changed my life. So, and I, I apologize, listeners, if you know this story already. I know I've said it on another podcast, but here we go. So, uh, I got given a brushes voucher. For my thirteenth, twelfth, twelfth birthday, thirteenth, yeah, twelfth, because it was ninety three, and everyone in my town loved the Red Hot Chili Peppers. I didn't really like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Don't like the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but I thought I want to be cool, so I went in there with all the all intents and purposes to buy a Red Hot Chili Peppers t shirt. The only one they had was a double XL, and I was not a double XL. <laughs> yeah. And so I was like going, all right, what, what do I get? I can't get a T-shirt. And then I remember seeing this song on Rage and going, oh, there's a song, and talking to the guy, thing. oh, there's a song, um, it's uh, like a Simon and Garfunkel cover. And he goes, oh, the band's called The Lemonheads. He gave me It's a Shame About Ray, yeah. which was, this was tacked on the end of the reissue of it. Uh, they recorded this song for the 25th anniversary of The Graduate on VHS. Uh, and then... Um, they made a film clip with had a bit of the graduate in it. And so I, I took it home, took home that CD and my world was blown wide open with the kind of music I was into after that point. It was like, all right. And it was all, always that thing of going, living in a small town, trying to do like, you know, go off course and go, don't just do what everyone else is doing. Yeah. Not be contrary, but kind of go, oh, I'm doing my own thing and that, and that's fine. And I'm enjoying this. Well, yeah. And, and it's hard. I mean, I reckon when you're young, it's hard to actually um, just find who you are. Yeah, and 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 I, I didn't grow up in a small town, 
but I imagine it's harder to find who you are because you've got less fewer examples of who you might be around yeah. you. And also conformity plays such a strong role, you know, in that environment. Yeah. Um, and it's really important. I, but I remember that too. Like, this is going to sound really fucking lame. But it's like when I, when I first heard hip-hop, like when I heard NWA, and I was a kid growing up in a suburb called Brighton. Yeah. And Brighton is where Shane Warne chose to live once he became a squillionaire. Like it's, we weren't, we were not really rich. My, both my parents like grew up in really um, pretty tough suburbs. Um, but that gives you an idea. Like there was nothing hip hop about where I grew up, yeah. but there's something just when I heard hip hop for the first time and it was just like, oh, that's a whole other thing that, that absolutely clicks with what I like and, and what works for me. Yeah. Getting back to the Lemonheads though. I mean, that's, what a gift from outer space. Yeah. And well, then the, the that gives Evan Dando and that gives you everything yeah. you need. You know? Well, that's the thing. I went Evan Dando and then he was kind of talking about like, and like lumped in with bands like Sonic Youth and Pavement and all that kind of stuff and opened me up to all that kind of American guitar music that wasn't really being played on Triple J. Like Triple J at the time, that played in specialty shows, but during the day it wasn't really, there was always a big push for Australian music on Triple J, which is how it should be. But like, Bands like Pavement weren't really played. So it was like reading about the Lemonheads in Juice magazine. I was a big fan yeah. of Juice magazine. But so for a bit of background, Evan Dando didn't really like this song, thought he got kind of got tricked into doing it. And then when they when it was a hit and they put it on, it's a shame that Ray, he didn't really want it on either. Uh, and then um, he was always kind of fighting with the band members as well. He's the only constant in the Lemonheads. Uh, in 1990, he was the drummer of the band. Then their lead singer left. So he thought, all right, I'll be the singer. They won kind of this battle of the bands comp to record an EP. So he thought, all right, I'll do the EP, then I'll leave. He hated being in the band so much. So every song for one gig, he will just play the intro to Master of Puppets every single lead break. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but he also, he this is a cover. The Lemonheads have so many covers that people don't really know their covers because he was really good friends with Tom Morgan from the band Smudge and Nick Dalton. And so he would do a lot of Smudge songs. So their other big hit in this country, I, I guess, would be Outdoor Type, which is a Smudge song. Yeah. And, yeah, so uh, Tom Morgan and him kind of – Nick Dalton was in the band the Lemonheads for a bit. But, uh, yeah, Evan Dando, big big fan of Australia. He's always out in Australia. Or yeah, I saw him when he was um, touring – the Baby on Board album, his, yeah. his solo album. I, I saw him play, but he's played here. He played here heaps. Yeah, I saw him play with, it was a really good gig. It was uh, Evan Dando, Tim Rogers and uh, Bob Evans all playing. Oh my God. And, uh, yeah, it was a really, really good night. That's a criminally good lineup. That's unbelievable. Yeah. What I will say about Mrs. Robinson is um, it's just because all the music's all there, like yeah. the, you know, the um, Simon and Garfunkel is they did it all right, yeah, you know, musically it's all there, but this nails it like yeah. it, like it sounds great, it's played well. The um, I mean, it's tough, like to do a cover of Simon and Garfunkel puts pressure on you vocally, just going, you know, yeah. these two angels that sang together in perfect harmony. Yeah, and and move the world, coalesce the world around them. Yeah, sing what they sing. That's brutal. That's brutal expectation. But this nails it. It's so good. 
Have you gone through your Paul Simon phase? I think most men, yeah. certain yeah. age, go, oh, you know, I might go back and listen to Simon and Garfield and go, oh, actually, Paul Simon, he really knows how to write a song. Yeah, but, yeah, it's all about, I mean, I'm obsessed with, I'm obsessed with Graceland oh. as a cultural achievement. Yeah. And if you watch the documentaries about Graceland, about the fact that, like, for, for those that aren't really aware of the context of it all, He's recording with groups like Ladysmith, Black Mambazo, and all of the great, like, Afro pop bands in South Africa and Zimbabwe um, under apartheid. Mm. And at the time, the the boycott of South South Africa is in full effect. Yeah, Our sporting teams aren't meant to play there. You're not meant to do trade with South South Africa. And he is going there and recording with artists. And he's fronting up like the UN of calling him out, like. He's doing press conferences addressing the controversy like he's, a, you know, like a president of a country. Yeah. And and he just had the feeling that an economic boycott and a social boycott shouldn't be a cultural boycott. And, and, and that the, the cultural importance of groups like Ladysmith, Black Man, Barzo should be shared with the world. Um, and, and then you, you listen to that album through that prism and it's just wild. And, and then Ladysmith, Black Man, Barzo, still tour the world to this day yeah. entirely because of that experience. And it's just a beautiful, um, it's a beautiful example of what a collaboration can do and what can happen when you, you know, you perhaps go against the herd to make something beautiful. But yeah, his lyrics are insanely oh, good. Very, very good. Hey, speaking of good lyrics, uh, oh. our next song. <laughs> now, normally... They like to put a little novelty song at the end of the album. Not, not this time. They've got it smack in the middle of side A. This is King Missile and Detachable Penis. story what a narrative i mean he for, for those of you that are concerned um he does find it on <laughs> uh on the i think on the picnic blanket at a at a swap meet market or something like that yeah he has to ha- haggle him down from 15 dollars to 10 dollars. that's right and he he cleans it off and reattaches yeah. it and he feels yeah. whole again it's it's an incredible story i mean it's a it's as novelty songs go and this is actually where this is the song that makes me think of the turf war between Hit Machine and 100% Hits. This is a this is absolutely a Hit Machine song. Oh, really? Yeah, this is a Hit Machine song because at the same time, the Hit Machine, I think it was four that came out at the same time as this in 93, had Green Jelly's Three Little Pigs on it. Yeah. And they were the two novelty songs going head to head at that time. Yeah. And, and this felt to me like, 
oh yeah, we can also do a grungy, you know, a grungy novelty song. Yeah. See, this is what I like about this song is the the music is actually quite good. I quite like it. It's very kind of butthole surfers-ish, which yeah. sounds like a novelty band, but they're not. Like they're they're, they're kind of serious. They're yeah. a serious outfit. <laughs> it's so funny. <laughs> Like they are a serious outfit, and they just love butthole surfing. Yeah. So um, King Missile, this is how they started. So John C. Hall, who is the uh, singer of the band, he uh, was he would attend open mic poetry readings, and after three shows at this one night, he was he became the featured poet. They said, "We love your poems. You're the featured poet." And he thought, you know what? Twenty minutes of me just reading poetry, that's going to be pretty boring. Mm. I've got a mate who plays guitar. I'm going to ask him. So he said, hey, Dog Bowl, that was his friend, right. can you play guitar over some of my poems? And Dog Bowl went, yeah, I'll get a whole band. We'll do a whole thing for it. And so, and they started getting college radio play. They had a hit before this. When I say hit, minor hit, but uh, Jesus is Way Cool was one of their songs. Oh, yeah, it's a great, great track. Great song. And then this came out and this was the big, the big one that got to, uh, their album, which is this is from Happy Hour, went to number one on the college radio charts. Uh, this was song was number 25 in the Billboard Modern Rock Tracks, wow. which is quite big. But uh, John didn't like, didn't like doing this, didn't like doing the song. And so what they would do, they had whole people coming to them just see this song. They'd play it early on in the set and go, that's it. If you don't want any of our other songs, you can go now. And he said people would leave. And he said it was much better gigs because the only people who wanted to be who were there wanted to be there. It wasn't just people going, yelling out, play detachable penis the entire time. That's um yeah, I admire it. Smart you got, strategy. You, you got the money. And yeah, also I was gonna say, you know, and he probably bought himself a house. Yeah. So everything's fine. Like number one well on for college, John Hall. Number one on the college charts and touring colleges, they would have done great. Yes. That. that was a that was a golden age of showbiz. Dog Bowl would have got himself a very big bowl. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, Tashable Penis. It's, it's, look, also as an oldie song, it's, it's aged pretty well. I think the sound is good. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like a novelty song. No. It's, no. and it's a, it's a comedic story, you know, but it's also like if you were trying really hard, you could find some meaning in it. Yeah. Like, you know, he is a poet. First principles, he is a poet. Nobel worthy, maybe. But um, uh, <laughs> he's, he's the college equivalent of Seamus Heaney. But I, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I do think, like, it's, it's not, so dumb and, uh, not so dumb a novelty song as to be unlistenable. And no. I will say that before I had this song on this compilation, I had the single. Okay, there you go. The CD single of this. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a break. Here's some ads. We'll be back after these messages. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. And we're back. Now, another 
another cover. Another cover on the album. So this is, they've been on before, this is Ugly Kid Joe and Cats in the Cradle. Huge song, huge song, huge song. I've got to say something. Listening to that, I'm just like, I really need to spend some more time with my son. <laughs> like, and it's ugly kid Joe. I know cool. the, the lyrics still like get you. Like, yeah. I was just like, thinking, when's the last time I actually returned my dad's phone calls? I've got to, I've got to, I've got to give John a call. Yeah, it's wow. I mean, there's Cat Stevens. Speaking of great lyrics, wrote the hell. No, not Cat Stevens. I thought what? the same thing. I, I thought the same thing. I think it's because it's cats in the title. It's Harry Ch- Harry Chapin. Oh my god! Yeah, you're right. Why did I think that was Cat Stevens? I think everyone just thinks it's Cat Stevens. I think maybe because it's got cats in the title of it, we just kind of assume. But he wrote Father and Son. The other, the other Father and Son. Yeah. The other wistful no, look off in the distance. Like, yeah. 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 Harry Chapin covered it. Well, this wipes the floor with it. Like yeah. it's um. Oh my god! Isn't that an interesting? That's well, a, this was. It's meant, what's it called? Just so this is a side point. This is interesting. The Beriston Bayes effect. The oh, yeah, Mandela the, effect. The Mandela effect. Yeah. We just did an absolute Mandela effect then. Yeah. That's incredible. Um, that's an intolerable documentary to watch, but it's uh, the Mandela effect. <laughs> but that's where, for those that don't know, it, the, the story is there's a whole lot of people that swear that they saw on the news that Nelson Mandela had died in prison. Yeah believe that as a fact and then when Mandela walked through they're going what the what are you talking about he died in prison yeah it's about all people who remember the Berenstain Bears as the Berenstain Bears yeah and it's and they've called it the Mandela effect they believe it is when all slightly different alternate universes cross over and they have become trapped in a slightly different universe to the one that they were in before yeah or as Josh and I just did, we just misremembered something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this was written by Harry. Oh, it started off written by Harry Chapin, but started off as lyrics that his wife Sandy Gaston, who's a poet, wrote some lyrics, and it was about the awkward relationship between her first husband and her son with him. Wow. And Harry Chapin took it. And went, oh, this this is good for a song. Do you mind? And she was like, go go for it. And um. But he also said it was also about his relationship with his own son, who's also called Josh, and saying that relationship scares scares the hell out of me, okay, scares me to death. So I think, though, imagine being Sandy Gaston's first husband. Not only has she written a poem about how you didn't spend enough time with your kids, then her new husband has written a, a global smash hit song about it, and you're going to listen to it all the time and go, fucking hell, I was, I was working. I was trying my best. Like, Jesus. Yeah. Like, yeah, anyway. But it's also, it's like, it wasn't just a global smash hit song. 
It was a global smash hit song that cemented in everyone's mind the idea of what bad parenting looks like. Yes. You know, like it's just like en masse to a whole culture saying you're doing it wrong and you're hurting your kids and they won't love you one day. And it's like, oh, man, that just... It's this thing. They look up to you. They want to be like you, and then they're picking up all your own, all your bad habits, and they're going to do it with their own children. It's like, oh, it no reminds good. me of if uh, anyone's ever seen Tripod perform "Suicide Is Painless," the theme from oh. live, and tell the story about the guy that wrote the song "Suicide Is Painless" and how that's his only hit. But he must have a, a wall because there's been so many covers of it that he has a wall of tapes and on the spine of all of them it says suicide is painless. Yeah. Like, it just reminds me of that, just a, <laughs> a thing that lingers for decades and decades. Um, I will say Ugly Kid Joe made this their own by not having an apostrophe between the T and the S in cats. In the original there's an apostrophe. So cat oh. is a person obviously. But yes. Ugly Kid Joe version, it's a bunch of cats. It's, the, it's actual cats in a cradle. Um, I'm going to say something. Well, well, that is an interesting choice or a typo. But um, one thing I'm going to say is my my two-year-old, I think, is about to storm into the room in a moment. I've heard he's just come home. Yep. It's actually perfect timing. You'll you'll hear me be what what a great and connected father I'm going to be to my two-year-old son. I'll be like, you know, and then I'll be like, see you later. You know, I'm, you know I'm doing we'll a podcast. <laughs> Um, Podcast in the yeah, cradle, yeah. But it's it's interesting. Well, that was kind of Ugly Kid Joe's second big hit, and that was pretty much it for Ugly Kid Joe. Or oh, is it third? Third, third, third. That's now, what I hate about much, you. Yeah. Is it? Uh, won't you be my neighbor? I hate everything about you, and then this. Yeah, all three have been on hundred percent hits. Like, well, bigger, they were one hundred percent hit. Yeah, big bigger in Australia and Japan than they were in America. Yeah, they are, they are built for Japan. Everything yeah. about them says Japan. Yeah. Um, right. We're gonna move on. I imagine, to- I imagine quite unsavory guys. That's just that's just the feeling that I got was. I know. I watched an interview with Wit, the lead singer. Seems quite reasonable and oh, quite wow. like really into snowboarding. That's he just wants to snowboard his whole life. So you know. Well, I think he's probably managed it. Yeah. Well All right. Moving on. Back to Australia now. This is Boom Crash Opera with "This Isn't Love." think charlie um i think a number of things um like my first my first feeling when i listen back to this song is um it's that onion skin sound of 1989 reheated for 1993 yep but as it goes on you would have to say that 
That is a pretty classic Oz rock sound. That's the sound of commercial rock and roll in Australia. I 100% agree. I was listening to this going, they fit in the same box to me as In Excess. Yeah. Now, I, I don't really like In Excess. I don't dislike In Excess. I think they're a fine band and they fit that. You can obviously tell good live band and they yeah. build up They build up their profile by doing live gigs. That's how they had to. And Boom Crash Opera would be the same, I'm sure. But it just seems all of them could be replaced by session musicians and you wouldn't change the sound. Yeah, I think you're right. But another way of looking at it is they're a good live band who found a way to to actually tighten that sound up in a studio. And they're still so they're they're skilled live musicians and they've found a way to record it and keep that yeah. energy, you know. But I imagine they also all would have been great studio musicians working for other people as yeah. well. You know, exactly that their, their, their careers really would be band. lifetime musicians. Just yeah. all of them great. Yeah. All right, moving on. Thing of lifetime musicians. She's been on, I think this is a third, fourth appearance. This is Wendy Matthews from the album Lily, huge album, If Only I Could. I could. Um, that album, Lily, was enormous. Yeah, like it was really was such a such a big such a big album. Yeah, and the I, I, I was looking at the notes on this because I was like trying to rem- like I don't know anything about that album or the recording of it, but it had huge singles. But it was recorded a lot of it was recorded in the states. Yep, and it was produced by T Bone Burnett. Yeah, from. Uh, who from Missouri and Texas, like, you know, grew up in the South. Yeah. And is like a really significant music producer and writer. Like, yeah. Um, and so it's just, it's, it's interesting. And also like you listen to that song, um, listening to if I, if only I could not, obviously not the biggest song off the, off the album, but just Wendy Matthews is so confident. Yeah. Just, you know, like really musically confident in that song, in the whole album. Yeah. Well, Ben, like ben Lomas, when he was on, was saying her, her vocals are always so crisp, like really crisp vocals. And yeah. I, look, listen to this. I, I like this song. It's that perfect encapsulates the 1990s pop music for everyone. It's not like it's like yeah. it's perfect commercial radio song. It's like got a good message, builds, it's all that kind of stuff. 
But my thing with this one is that it sounds like it's a soul song sung by a pop rock singer. I and think it's spot on. Spot I think, on. Yeah, I think that, that's the only issue I have with it. And not that it's a big issue. I think she sounds great. But I think if I – you give this to, like, a Tina Turner, a Mavis Staples, it's going to go to another level. I mean, they're, they're just better singers, but it is going to go to another level. It's going to have a bit more meaning to it, I think, as well. But And the, um, the, the I think something that really creates that feeling, like I, I 100% agree with you. God, we agree so much, Josh. Yeah. But cool. um, the organ sound in there, getting back to T-Bone and his wonderful work here, yeah, it sounds like a Muscle Shoals organ. Yep. Like it's, it, it is an absolute, the sound of that organ is a soul organ. Um. Percy Sledge could be singing over that organ. You know, like yeah. you, you could absolutely, you can hear it. And and I think you're right. Like, but at the same time, I mean, you hand any song in the world to Tina Turner and it's going to be a better yeah. song. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like, that is true. Like, so, so, yeah, I think it's, but you're right. That, that's the, that is kind of the difference there. You know, yeah. I, do you know what? I'd be really interested to hear, um, uh, Casey Donovan sing this. Yeah. Because I reckon she, like she's got some real soul depth, you know, like in, in her vocal and what it can do. Yeah. Um, so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna produce it. I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna I'm what gonna if, get Casey and do this song. My, if I was if I was producing this, my my tip for him would be like, if only I could. So we know you can't. So you need to hear a bit of that brokenness. In yeah. the chorus, like if you have that in it, so it's not so shy. If only I could, I'd make the world a better place. It's all like, yeah, happy, clappy, but it's like there's a sadness there. Like if only I could. Yeah, you but actually need. We the, can't. You ain't. You need the irony of Bette Midler's from a distance. Yes. <laughs> like, but yeah, it's it, it's that it's a dream that will never come true. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite a sad idea. I think you're absolutely right. So. Um, when I'm producing the Mars Singer and Casey Donovan's in the fucking Blowfly or whatever it is, yeah. that's that that's going to be my little tip to her. That's great, great All direction. Right. Hey, <laughs> this Wendy Matthews also was the only female so far on the. It was a real cock forest this this side, eh? But um, we have, we have I, think, I think you mean it was a real cock forest. The music industry. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But, yes. But here we have to close off side A. One of the greatest voices in in music. This is Katie Lang and her huge, huge song, Constant Craving.
Such a good song. I mean, it's so good. And and it's funny, like, um, until Katie Lang did a cover of Hallelujah, you'd say that was probably her, one yeah. of her most famous songs. Oh, that and the duet, the Roy Orbison. Yes, Crying. Crying. Yeah. Um, just such a huge song. Yeah. And just so beautiful and a perfect showcase for what she could do. And also, it... It is such a musically so so simple, so her voice can just do all the work. You know, yeah, it's great. So uh, for those uh, who don't know anything about Katie Lang, Canadian started off as a uh, as a country singer. She had a career in Canada as a country singer. Actually, started off in a Patsy Cline tribute band. That was her first. Uh, I did not know that. That is awesome. Yeah, it's That's cool. Great. Uh, at twenty three, so her, her kind of style was cowgirl punk, and uh, at twenty three, her. Her album, A Truly Western Experience, she recorded that with a band called The Reclines, got a lot of attention. And in 84, uh, Seymour Stein, who is the guy who kind of not discovered but, like, produced, like, people like The Ramones, Pretenders, Talking Heads, Madonna, uh, flew up to Canada. And what people didn't know was he loves country music, even though he was getting all these kind of, like, uh, punk and post-punk kind of bands and Madonna. Like he was like, no, nah, I'm a big country fan. And so he and Katie Lang drank beer and ate piogies and sang country standards into the night. And that's when he's like, this is, this is the one for me. This is my, she's going to be my favorite uh, signing. Wow. And uh, yeah, he said, I knew it. And, and when he heard the song, uh, no, when she wrote this song and heard it properly, she said she was annoyed by it because she knew she'd made a hit. And that it was she was going to sell out at the time. That was the thing. So yeah, it's interesting you should say that because it's a thought that I've always had about Katie Lang, and, and just a, like a, a sense that I get because every time I've ever seen her interviewed, she's adored by the interviewer. Yeah, you know, like just just overwhelmingly adored and revered to the extent that it creates a an odd conversational dynamic that it's hard for someone to be themselves and just have a conversation. Yeah. And, and it might be because of that. And it might be a number of other things, but I always felt like she was so bored by being successful. Yes. Yeah. Like she loved singing. She loved her voice meeting the music in the air is the feeling that you got from her. Yeah. And she didn't give a shit about anything else. No. And, 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 all of it. She got bigger and bigger and, and like, um, you could almost see it eat away at her or, or actually just be so tiresome for her. Yeah. And it's funny you should say that because that, that was just always the feeling that I got. I was reading about, um, about this just quickly uh, about the film clip, which won Best Female Video at the 93 MTV Music Awards, and it was black and white. It's a beautiful film clip. Yeah. But she is singing backstage at a performance of Waiting for Godot and they filmed it in Paris because the theme of wanting for something that won't arrive is, is you know, is largely what Waiting for Godot is about, you know, yes. like is, is at the core of Waiting for Godot. So, the, like, the, the themes match up so brilliantly. But that's a hugely artistic endeavour, you know, to yeah. go, like, Oh, uh, how what, what sort of film clip are we going to do? Oh, it's going to be a waiting for Godot yes. inspired um, <laughs> film clip. But once again, that feeds that all feeds back into you know reluctant superstar KD Lang. But also, so this song, um, 
So the Rolling Stones in 97 had a song called Anybody Seen My Baby, which stole, not stole, but they are uh, very similar in the chorus, the melody, and people would say, hey, that's like Constant Craving, and uh, Mick Jagger and um, Keith Richards had said, oh, we've never heard that song. I don't know. No, we couldn't have sung it. We've never heard the song. And then Mick Jagger later realised that his daughter had been listening to the song constantly in her room <laughs> and it had just seeped into his, like, <laughs> consciousness. So, yeah. Also, like, just to some to some extent, it's like, hey, Mick, just write, yeah. write a check, mate. Well, yeah, she has. She now has a songwriting credit for the song, yeah, which is very apt when they were like, "Hey, the Verve, um, <laughs> give give us that money, please." Yeah, which they have now given back to him. But yeah, that's fine. Um, it's funny. Have you ever heard Noel Gallagher talk about talk about that? Uh, like, I, I probably have. I've heard every single. Well, just about no Noel Gallagher just talking about because um, I think oh, they were. I think they were writing Sony, checks. Or sorry. When he's like, yeah, I'll just write a check. I've never been, I've never been pinged for plagiarism because I'll just write a check. Yeah, yeah, cool. But also, he's got a he's uh, one thing I really like about him is like I think it's Sony. I think they're with Sony. Yeah. And he said that like it's like once every once a year, like the lawyer from Sony rings up and goes, oh, "I'm going to play some songs we reckon are ripping you off." And he's he is always like, "Yeah, it doesn't matter." Yeah. I like he don't you know he like he just has such a less predatory attitude about it. And he's like, I'm, I live in a castle. Yeah. Everything's fine. Um, and, and he's always had the attitude of, I was able to make music because I liked T-Rex and the Beatles. So why am I going to be pissed off if someone who liked Oasis, yeah. you know, can make some music? And I've always, I've, I've always liked that, that attitude a little bit more. Hey, Charlie, this brings us to the end of the episode. Before we go, now they call it 100% hits. How many... Percent? Would you give this out of the hundred in terms of hits? So we've got eight track, uh, nine, nine tracks, tracks, yeah, nine tracks that we've heard. I would say uh, I'm gonna. I'm, I want to be accurate with this. Yeah. All right. Um, I do, I know I make it hard by making you divide hundred by nine, but that's fine. That's fine. I can cope with that. It'll be a little bit off. Um, I'm subtracting. Five out of nine. I'm giving it about a 55 to 60 percent hits. It's pretty good. It's pretty good. Oh, that is pretty good. And by, by I'm including detachable penis in that purely because nice. it was a very successful, yeah, you know, a very successful song. Hey, it was a hit. Hey, thanks, Charlie, for doing this. Absolute pleasure. Got anything to plug before we close it up? Um, I'm gonna do the yearly at the end of the year on ABC. Nice. So try and remember this yeah. in December. <laughs> Hey, thanks everyone for uh, being listening. Thanks everyone for subscribing to the Patreon. You guys are the absolute best. I'll see you next time. Bye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.